Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you have whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But not two spa- are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. A few weeks ago, we looked at some arguments that atheists make based on the problem of suffering and how they come to the conclusion that God does not exist based on the fact that there's suffering people, that people go through hard and difficult things. And that is going to, that served as a beginning point for what's going to be a periodic study on some arguments that we get from maybe some of our friends or neighbors or people that we work with who do not believe in God. They're atheists. They do not accept the premise that there is a God who exists and that there is, they deny any sort of existence of a higher supreme being. Or maybe you have friends who are skeptics. Maybe they wouldn't classify themselves as a full-blown atheist, but they're what they might call themselves as an agnostic. They are doubtful in whether there is a God. So this month, I want us to think about the argument that we sometimes hear from friends and neighbors who tend to be a skeptic of some sort and that they do not believe in God or they are just very doubtful. And the existence of hell, and the problem of hell for them. And they sometimes will pose the question to us, would a loving God send someone to hell? That's a very... Difficult question in the way it's posed because I think there are some nuances in our how we might use some of the same definition or same words, but we might have different meanings behind some of these words. Uh, but it is a common question that we are posed with and that we need to learn how to answer. Because the idea of eternal conscious punishment in hell is something that is taught in the Bible. And while it probably makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable when we are honest with ourselves, we probably don't care much for it. C.S. Lewis, in a book that he wrote, The Problem of Pain, which we will see some quotes from him tonight, he said that if there is one doctrine that the Bible does teach that he would like to get rid of, it is this one. At least he was honest about it. He said that he couldn't do it in good faith, because the Bible teaches it. Jesus Himself taught about it. 
In the passage that we read in Matthew chapter 10 just a moment ago, in verse 28, Jesus warns very clearly about eternal destruction in hell. And so it is something that we have to be able to give a defense for. It's something that we have to be able to answer. And since we do also believe in a loving God, how do these two things find compatibility? Are they contradictory? Or is the fact that God is a loving and merciful and good God who would assign unbelievers, the wicked, eternal punishment in a place of outer darkness, a place of fire and torment, would He allow those things? That's a question that the atheists have trouble with. And so there are teachings about hell that many people find offensive. But what might seem to be a little bit ironic is that this is a question that's posed by unbelievers, people who are atheists and skeptics. And if you were to just talk to them about a loving God who created the whole universe, they would find that offensive as well. And so they find the whole notion of God to be an offense in the first place. But we want to try to understand where atheists are coming from. Because we don't mean anything harmful by acknowledging what they are and what they believe. That they are atheists. They do not believe in God. But they do hold certain beliefs true. In the Humanist Manifesto, and yes, there is a manifesto that was written by humanists, by people who would subscribe to humanistic reasoning. They say, the promise of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are both illusory and harmful. They distract humans from present concerns, from self-actualization, and from rectifying social injustices. It's interesting that they say the promise of salvation and the pro- and the promise or fear of eternal damnation, it winds up in the same place. That they do not think it's of any benefit for you to worry about anything other than the here and now. Which is the whole line of humanistic reasoning and teaching and thinking. One professor of religion at the University of North Carolina said back in 2020, which I found kind of ironic if you look at the date, it's right around when the pandemic started to be a real major threat here in the United States. He said uh, in March 31st of 2020 on NPR, a, a podcast with NPR, he says, okay, so okay, suppose I'm just a regular old sinner and I die when I'm 40, and so maybe I had about 25, maybe even 30 years of not being the most perfect person on earth. I'm going to be tortured for 30 trillion years for those 30 years? And those 30 trillion years is just the beginning? Is there really a God who's going to allow that, let alone cause it? 
I mean, just no. And he began laughing. He would later go on to say in the same podcast, and so I think I cannot believe that you actually say that God is just and merciful and loving. Even if He believes in judgment, He is not going to torture you for 30 trillion years and then keep going. It just isn't going to happen. He continues on, but the main thing is that I think that in fact it imposes emotional damage at this whole doctrine of hell. He says it imposes emotional damage when people need to find life pleasant and hopeful, which that's the really ironic part, I think, about when all this is happening, when the whole global pandemic is hitting the United States. He says when people need to find life pleasant and hopeful, and they need to be helpful to other people, they need to enjoy life. If all you're looking forward to is what's going to happen after you die, you can't really fully enjoy life now because this is just a dress rehearsal. And so I don't try to talk people out of their view of heaven, but I think actually it's better off, you know, not living for what's going to happen after you die. It's better off living for what you can do now. There's a lot in this quote that we could unpack, but I think this definitely represents the views and the skepticism that you can see that there that we are going to try to unpack as we continue on in our study this afternoon. Bertrand Russell, a British philosopher, in an essay called Why I Am Not a Christian, said there is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character. And that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Christ certainly, as depicted in the Gospels, did believe in everlasting punishment. And one does not find repeatedly a vindictive fury against those people who would not listen to his preaching. It's offensive. Dan Barker, in a book called Godless, in which he would explain and, and describe his deconversion, if you will, that he, was, he began as a preacher at, uh, of Christianity, and I use that in very broad strokes, but he talked about how he became an atheist. And he says, probably the worst of all of Jesus' ideas is the teaching of hell. Any system of thought or any religion that contains such a threat of physical violence is morally bankrupt. Another uh, quote from George H. Smith in his book called Atheism. He said, and why would God create a place of torment in the first place unless He derived some kind of pleasure or satisfaction from witnessing pain? Whether the Christian deity of fire and brimstone projects love or neurotic sadism on a cosmic scale will be left to the conscience of the reader to decide. And so you can see just in this kind of quote here, 
is that there is a very distorted view of God that they are accepting the premise, okay, if hell exists, then it's not because you have a loving God, it's actually because you have a moral monster for a God. A God who is pleased and, get, and gains some kind of pleasure because of the pain and the anguish of people and their suffering. And so what you can tell in all these quotes that we will be looking at and examining tonight is that atheists and their problem with hell is that there, there begins to be a glorified sense of self in society. In that humanist manifesto, they are more concerned about how if you're thinking about anything, eternal salvation or eternal damnation, then you're not able to be an effective uh, human being and solve problems that we face here in, in this life. So they think that we're going to be able to solve all problems, right? Human beings will be able to solve all problems if you just give us enough time. There's a very much exalted sense of self also, there is a very shallow view of God that God cannot be a complex being or person. He cannot be loving and also at the same time demand justice. Which I find very ironic coming from people who would claim that we need social justice, right? I would assume they would love people. They love themselves a lot of times or their movements and their causes. So they have, they're fine at accepting complexity of life and their own living and their own moral standards, but God can't be complex. We just have to have a very shallow view of God. God can't be moral and loving and merciful while also demanding justice and punishment for wrongdoing. That just can't be with God. It also demands a, a very shallow view of eternity and sin, a distorted view on life's purpose, that there is this accepted notion that life is just about us here and now and not about eternity. You can see in some of these quotes that we've seen that if you think about life after or something existence after this life, well, that actually ends up being harmful, they think. And there's a flawed view of hell that we'll talk about this afternoon as well. And there's a very corrupted view of Jesus. I don't think that Jesus was divine, obviously. I think that His teaching on hell is makes Him very corrupt, in fact. And I would suggest that they have a very corrupted view of Jesus in other words, if you put all these things together, they just do not believe. It's disbelief. And they are articulating that disbelief in all these passages and these quotes that we have put up on the screen. They are expressing their disbelief, their questions, their doubts, and even their convictions about God and whether He exists, and if He exists, what kind of God He would be. They're saying they don't want anything to do with it. 
But how do people arrive at such a place where they could water down hell? Where they could try to diminish their understanding of hell? And first, I would suggest they have to distort their view of God. And if you are going to change your perspective on eternal condemnation in hell, then it begins with changing your view of God. And in particular, they have to promote the idea of God's love at the expense of God's justice. There are passages of Scripture, such as in 1 John chapter 4, where the Apostle John says in verse 16, that God is love. There's no doubt about that. We know that in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3 and verse 16, that God loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son. That we understand that God is a God of love. He loves everyone equally. And He wants everyone to come to salvation. In 1 John chapter 2 and in verse 2, that he talks about how Jesus is, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. There's no doubt that God loves, that God is a loving God, a merciful God. But whenever people begin to promote and exalt God's love as contradictory to his justice, or that, his, that he cannot have an express anger or wrath, then we're going to be changing our understanding of who God is. In the atheist argument, they do not believe a merciful, good, and loving God would maintain any sense of justice because He's a loving God. If He loves, then He can't hold someone accountable. And so when they end up doing that, they are distorting not only God's love, they actually distort God's justice too. We'll talk about that. But what we can obviously see, the Bible teaches God is a God of love. And a loving God expects that love be reciprocated. But there is something about God's love is that He does not force or corrupt coerce anyone to love Him in return. And unless God coerced people to accept Him and accept Jesus, then some people are capable by their free will to reject God. And if they can reject God, then they can reject God's love and they can reject God's mercy. God's love will not allow Him to coerce people to do something against their free will. And it's actually because of God's love. This is so important to understand. It's actually because He loves us that hell must be allowed to exist. God allowed for people to deny Him because He allows free will. God allows Himself to be rejected. He allows Himself to be rejected. And if He allows rejection because of disbelief, then those people voluntarily separate themselves from God. 
I was trying to think of some example that might help illustrate that principle. And if I were to, if you didn't know me from Adam, that you just, and I just came up to your door and, and rang the doorbell and asked the first thing if I could come inside your house, and you don't know me, you might say, I don't think so. <laughs> you might say, I'm happy to talk with you, but we're just going to visit outside. And if I asked you, why are you not going to allow me into your house? And you would say, well, I don't have to let you into my house. That doesn't mean you're an unloving person or an unkind person. It just means that you're being protective. You can allow people to distance themselves and still be a nice, kind, generous person. But you can also have this sense of justice or this sense of protection. And if there are people who voluntarily reject God, if they do not want to have anything to do with God, God does not force Himself on you. It would be the same as if you just choose to not let me come inside your home. Hell is a place of eternal separation from God. God is not going to force people to do something against their will. When people distort their view of God, they can easily remove God and reject faith in Him. And then they can also remove any concept of hell. And then also, another fundamental change that has to take place if we're going to change and alternate our view of hell is we have to distort our sense of God's justice. We don't have time to look at all the passages. I'm going to try to let you jot them down if you want to. But in the book of Habakkuk, in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, we learn that God is a holy and just God and that He cannot look upon sin and evil, wickedness in an approving fashion. We also learn that God is a judge of all the earth and He is going to do what is right and what is fair. But what people have to do is they have to change and accept an alternative view of God's justice. And what began to happen is that as moral philosophers began to find, I guess, a job with the, in academia, they began arguing against justice and punishment as being a form of retribution. And you can see this play out even in our criminal justice system today. That for the most part, we don't have a system of retribution for wrongdoing and crime. The emphasis that has taken place and taken root is that if there is a criminal, he needs to be reformed. He needs to be re rehabilitated. He needs to be restored back into society. 
And that's the path that the criminal justice system has taken. That criminals are no longer described as evil. Instead, they are viewed as patients who are sick and have a disease that need to be healed. And I'm not going to get into the political science or the moral philosophy of whether that's right or wrong or indifferent. I, I don't really care. But whether whatever opinion we might have about that, is that we have taken that sense of change in our society and we've applied it to the Bible. And we say, well, God's justice, He needs to reform sinners, right? And I would say He gives absolutely a lot of time. He gives you a lifetime to reform yourself. He gives you plenty of chances but if you live your life in rejection of God, then there is going to come a day in which we will feel retribution for wrongdoing. That the Bible speaks about justice in the terms of retribution. A crime that is committed or a sin that is committed demands an equal and fair punishment. Notice in the book of 2 Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is writing here to the church at Thessalonica who were being faced with people who were treating them badly. In uh, verse 6, he says, For after all, it is only just, this idea of justice, that it is only just for God to repay with affliction, those who afflict you. You see how God's justice works? That if you do something wrong, He's going to give it back to you. In verse 7, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, where the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That... God is going to repay in kind. The things that you do that are wrong, He is going to allow you to suffer that same kind of wrong. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 10, a passage that we are extremely familiar with, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 10, He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That means that if we have done evil, then we will reap what we have sown. That we will receive back what it is that we did that was wrong. In the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3, in Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 25, Paul says, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. That you will receive back what you have done wrong. That is how God's justice works. And if you begin to impose some other kind of justice system on these Bible passages, well then you can easily begin to 
back away from belief in the biblical doctrine of hell. God's justice involves retribution and recompense for wrongs. And God's justice is impartial, and He refuses to accept sin and wrongdoing as normative and acceptable. Someone is free to do so. Someone is free to commit sin, but they are not free to do so without consequence. There are going to be consequences for our actions. A third move, if you're going to get rid of the biblical doctrine of hell, is you have to begin to adopt a psychological worldview that undermines personal responsibility. In the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 18 and in verses 1 through 4, what Ezekiel lays out very clearly for us is that the soul who sins will die. And he expounds on that throughout the rest of that chapter in Ezekiel chapter 18. That we will take responsibility. We will face responsibility for our decisions, for our actions. But if you adopt this psychological worldview that undermines personal responsibility, just think with me for a moment of how people will oftentimes talk and say things, whether it be on the news or on TV shows or things like that. Human behavior has been redefined because of this humanistic psychology that denies or reduces personal responsibility for wrongdoing. We don't like shame or feelings of guilt. That's thought of as unbearable or cruel. People you might even find are quick to defend criminals based on external influences. Well, you know, they just had all these biological factors stack up against them. There's behavioral determinism that these people came from a certain family and so there are certain things that that family might do that is repeated throughout you know, their several generations. And so there's this predeterminism that uh, genetic dis- predisposition or the influence of the subconscious view. And while those might all be factors, and I'm not here to be against psychology and its benefits on some level, there might be factors that contribute to someone's reasoning and to someone's behavior. I fully accept that. But when we start using those factors and those reasons that someone might do something to excuse them from their responsibility of their choice, that's a different thing entirely. Remember in the quote that Ehrman made in the, we put up towards the beginning? He said, the main thing is that I think that in fact it imposes emotional damage. This whole doctrine about hell, it imposes emotional damage. He says, when people need to find life pleasant and hopeful, and they need to be helpful to other people. They need to enjoy life. <laughs> you see what he's saying? He's like, it's all about your pleasure. Life is just about pleasure. And that making sure that you are happy. He's adopted this psychological worldview. 
Life is only about yourself, and anything that makes you feel bad must be gotten rid of. Right? That would be the conclusion of his statements. So anything that makes you feel bad or uncomfortable, well, that's not any good. We need to get rid of it. When people adopt this kind of worldview, you can see that it becomes very appealing and very easy to reason how if there is a God, then He would never allow someone to go to hell for eternity. That makes someone feel bad. So we can't have that. Then we have to change our view of sin and salvation. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, and in verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I think sometimes we can even be guilty of this. We think of salvation as this personal feeling of, I feel good, you know. I have a good, positive relationship with Jesus Christ and it makes me just feel on top of the world. We think of salvation in those kinds of terms, don't we? But how does the Bible really use that term salvation? That word means to be rescued. And if you just read a couple verses later in verse 18, Paul says, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness." Oh, that doesn't make me feel as good, does it? (laughs) Because that means that God is angry when I sin, when I do something wrong. That's why I need salvation. Salvation is not just this I feel good kind of feeling. It's reminding us when we say I am saved, it means that I have been saved from the wrath of God. In chapter 2 of the book of Romans, in verse 5, Paul says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. What we are beginning to see is that the picture here is that if we refuse to repent and turn from our immorality and our sin, we are going to be judged. And we will not receive the glory and honor and immortality and eternal life if we are obedient to unrighteousness. You're always going to obey something. What are you going to be obedient to? To God or to yourself? He says you just store up wrath and indignation. Eternal punishment. Eternal and everlasting punishment. Salvation is by God's grace and He offers salvation to all. Salvation is a beautiful thing. If people would change their view of salvation and sin, then it 
makes for an easier way to water down the idea of hell. Have you ever noticed, like if you look at some of the social justice movements, they'll use religious terms and religious vocabulary. They'll talk about how it is immoral for certain things to happen, or it's sinful, and we need to be saved, we need, people need to be liberated, those kinds of things. Now, under such a society, the gospel is weaponized as a tool. The gospel or the good news of salvation from hell is distorted to be good news that sin is accepted and approved by a majority of society. The Bible speaks about salvation and sin. Salvation from sin and God's wrath. But we need to understand how they are used in the Bible. So, why can we believe in hell? Well, I would suggest to you one reason that we can believe in hell is that, well, let's see, there, is that God, Christ, and justice are real. That if you just think about those three things as fundamentally true, and I think it becomes easier to accept hell as true. And while it may make us feel uncomfortable, these are absolutely what give us grounding and to believe that God that will hold us accountable. Because what you see in these quotes is that people are uncomfortable with this view of hell, and so they want to get rid of God. That's the end game, isn't it? It's not that they just don't like hell, it's that they don't like God. But if you accept God as real, then it becomes a whole lot easier to understand how hell plays a part in this. Because God is full of compassion and loving kindness. In the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 34 and verses 6 and 7, when Moses was speaking with God on the mount, the Lord passed by in front of him, it says in verse 6, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That what you see is the abundant mercy and grace and compassion of God. Even in this passage where God is describing Himself and proclaiming Himself to Moses, and in, in the self-description of how He is compassionate and gracious and He forgives iniquity and transgression, God also 
puts in there, He holds people accountable. There's punishment. But what is God more inclined to do? Have you ever thought about that? What is God, what does He want to do the most? He wants you to be forgiven. He wants to forgive. He wants to show grace. He wants to give grace to people. Yeah, I think in verse 7 he says, who keeps loving kindness for thousands or for thousand generations. You think about how God wants His grace and His mercy to abound for a thousand generations to thousands of people. But then the iniquity that he speaks about at the end of the verse, it only lasts for three to four generations, right? You see that contrast? I think that should indicate something about God's nature. That God's nature, He wants us to be saved more than He wants to hold people accountable in, in, in punishment. So any notion that in those quotes that we have seen where God is described as getting pleasure of seeing people in hell, we see right off the bat that the Bible doesn't uphold that kind of view. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 18, the passage that we referenced a little bit ago in Ezekiel chapter 18, at the end of that chapter, in Ezekiel chapter 18 and in verse 32, God says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. That's a spiritual death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. God wants to give life. In 2 Peter chapter 3, God desires for all to come to repentance. We know that God wants to save. And in the book of Romans, we find out in chapter 3 that God is described as the just or the just one and the justifier. That God is the only one who can judge fairly and rightly, and because of that, He is the only one that can fairly describe and of how to save and to justify people. That is, through believing in His Son. God is perfect. And He is able to express His mercy and His compassion along with His justice. He can offer forgiveness, but He can also cast people into punishment. If we remove justice from God, then we don't have a loving, merciful God any longer. If God is just this loving God like a teddy bear that people seem to want to describe Him as, a loving God who would never cast someone into hell, if we remove God's justice, then He's not merciful any longer. Because God's mercy is the fact that He withholds punishment. If you take away the punishment, then there is nothing for God to withhold anymore. 
And so if you take away God's justice and you don't have a merciful God, mercy is just pretense. It's just religious show. It's just words. Mercy can only be real, genuine, and true when there is a punishment that God is withholding. You see, God is a just God. But if you have a God who is just but doesn't show tenderness, love, and mercy, then it just makes God into a cruel dictator. And what you see is that the balance is in the tension. Loving mercy and punishment. That balance is in that tension. And so if you deny the existence of hell, then you might as well deny salvation. You might as well deny God's existence. And something that I think is worth a little bit of consideration is the question, is God unfair? You know, in that quote by Ehrman, he, he posed this, if I live for 30 years, you know, if I live till I'm 40 or so, then maybe 25, 30 years of life that was spent where I just probably wasn't that great of a person. And he said, how does that equate to 30 trillion years? Which I think is a complete distortion of eternity. I, the only way I can describe eternity is how he did probably you know, a great length of time in 30 trillion years. But what I have to realize is that eternity is not defined by years. It's not defined in the same kind of time that I would be able to describe it as. Because I only know how to live by the time that our clocks show and how we operate our calendars and things like that. It's hard to describe eternity. So I don't fault Him for that. But what we have to realize is that we are eternal beings. Once we came into existence here in this life, we were created with a soul that we was going to continue to exist for eternity. So our decisions are not just temporary, no matter how much we might think they are. The way that we live, it's not just a temporary life. When we make decisions, they will affect eternity. Our life everlasting. So is it really fair you know, for God to judge us based on how we live in a very brief moment in time, or maybe just one or two actions. I would also, just to think about it, in maybe a slightly different term, we, we understand that punishment for certain crimes, for instance, those crimes may just be a snapshot in, in a moment in somebody's life, but there's usually a greater length of punishment, isn't there? Take murder, for instance. It doesn't take long to commit murder. If you have a weapon of some sort, it could happen very quickly. That might have just been a few minutes in someone's life, in some criminal's life, but we might throw them in prison for life. And if they commit a murder when they're 20 years old, 
and they live to be a hundred, they spend 80 years in prison. Should we give them another chance? That's not unfair, is it? Because they took someone's life. There was a wrong that they committed. Is God unfair for not giving more time? C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain, he says, but a master often knows when boys and parents do not that it is really useless to send a boy in for a certain examination again. Finality must come sometime. And it does not require a very robust faith to believe that omniscience knows when. It's not unfair for God who knows all things and He knows the hearts of people to judge even if it's based on just one action in one moment in time. Because I think our life is, while we may only see a moment, and while it may seem incongruent 30 years for 30 trillion years, our life is a sample size. If you're in math class and algebra and you're you're charting and, and you're doing some graph work, you can show the, the kind of graph that you'll have based on just a few plot points, can't you? You can see because it's a pattern that ends up being repeated over and over and over and over again. With just a little bit of a sample size, you can see how that is going to play out for infinity. Our life is a sample size, and if you gave us even a thousand years on the earth, then we might only continue to make the same choices as we do in a hundred years. It's not incongruent whenever you have an omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful God who is capable of judging and making the right kind of judgment. And Jesus obviously described the punishment of hell. He warned us about it. And what C.S. Lewis in that book, The Problem of Pain, said, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that is what he does. That God will allow the people that do not believe in Him. He will allow them to be in a place for all of eternity where God will not bother them. They will get what they ask for. God sent His Son to die for their sins. God is willing to forgive. There is no question about that. But if people reject that offer of salvation through Jesus, 
God allows them to reject Him for eternity. And He's reserved a place for them somewhere where He is not, where God is not going to bother them. Where they will be separated from the glory of God and Christ for all of eternity. God does not bring any punishment upon people that they themselves did not choose. They chose their eternal destination. But I think sometimes we have to be careful when we think about the doctrine of hell. Because sometimes we end up thinking about all the other people that will be there, don't we? If we're honest. We think about how Hitler is there. Let's go to the, like the most, you know, ter- most terrible person we can think of, probably, right? Hitler. I think we could all probably agree. How Hitler's in hell, or Stalin. We might think about how it's our neighbor who cusses and gets drunk and beats his wife and his children. How they are all headed that way. And how they need or needed Christ and forgiveness. There's no doubt. But I think it's very possible to lose sight about this. Because the real question is, do I need forgiveness? Do I need God's mercy? Do I need God's grace? And the answer is absolutely, positively yes. You and me, we all need God's forgiveness. We might get caught up in thinking about all those other terrible bad people that are going to end up in hell. But if we don't seek to make our life right with God, then we too will be there. And we cannot lose sight of that. The teaching of hell is a very serious doctrine. It is where those who are sinners and those who spend their life rejecting God will spend eternity. We want to avoid that place. It's a terrible place. Place of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place of torment. And we need to get busy sharing the gospel with others so that they do not spend eternity in the pit of hell. We need to get to work. We need to share the gospel with others. Because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will have to all give an answer for the things that we have done. Are you ready for that day? If there's anyone here who is not yet a Christian, or if you have become a Christian, but you've not been living in a way that would be pleasing to God, we want you to make your life right with the Lord so that eternity in heaven can be where we are all found. Where we are singing before God's throne and worshiping Him and serving Him and avoiding that fate in eternal damnation in hell. 
If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?